Good evening, everybody. How are you doing tonight? Blessed? Better than we deserve? All right. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. I miss you all. Every day that goes by and I don't get to see you, I pray for you. I long to see your faces. My heart is, uh, is complete when you guys are here because the family of God gathers. And for those that um, played hooky tonight and are sitting home in their warm little beds, you know, <laughs> little heathens. No, I'm joking. No, no, I'm the only heathen. I'm the only heathen. A couple things I want to share with you. Uh, uh, look, we, we can't joke, right? We're family. We can tease, you know. Erase that from the video, you know. No, but <laughs> on Sunday, I'll hear it. Um, a couple things I want to go over with you, just some, some news items to be praying about. Okay, obviously, be praying for our country right now. We see what's going on in our Senate. So wherever you fall on that side of the look, that's not, you know, I don't get into the politics, but just be praying for wisdom. We have such a divided country right now, and we need to have a unity, and uh, we need Jesus. We just need Jesus. Um, that's the first thing I'd ask. The second thing is today, I don't know how many of you knew, there was a very important Supreme, case, Supreme Court case going on this morning, and it has to do with public monies um, it's Espinoza versus Montana's Department of Education or Department, I think, of Revenue case or something like that, education case. It's uh, docket number 18-1195. That's 18-1195 if you're following it. And what it was in regards to, and this is a big, big uh, case. It's a big uh, movement that I, I'm praying to God uh, we win this one because what this would effectively allow is states and individuals to be able to take those public monies and to be used for education as we individually would like to use them. So for a Christian school, as an example, we could take those public monies and be able to send our children to a religious school. And it doesn't mean just Christian school. Obviously, it would be any, anybody can use it to anything they wanted to. I, I, I really like that because um, I think that gives people opportunity and choice, and I think choice is always a good option rather than being forced into something. So I, I'm praying that that case goes well. I know it's a complex case for a lot of reasons, but I'm just praying that, um, that uh, you know, the, the, the Lord gives us the win in this day and that we would be able to start seeing some of the taxpayer dollars uh, being able to direct it more to... Um, Christian education, that's my heart, to, to get into the children with the Word of God, since the Word of God has been taken out of our public schools and prayer has been taken out of our public schools, then it would be wonderful for parents to be able to reallocate their tax dollars if that's something that they would like and is important in their house. So I, I'm really praying about that. The second thing is um, there was an article, uh, uh, Hope brought it to me, specifically in the Dillsburg Banner about, um, some of you may know, in January, the month of January is... Um, the month where we, you know, you look at sex trafficking, the, the, as horrible as it is, um, they were gathering in, in Dillsburg in that area, and they were literally putting red paint in the cracks as a reminder to all those children and young people, and uh, the devastation that's been caused by that, and uh, just wicked sin, wicked, wicked sin. And so I'd ask you, please be praying there. You know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I remember at one point Atlanta, Georgia was right up there. If they weren't number one, they were really high up on that list. And I guess I was hearing, uh, please fact check this, I don't know this to be 100%, but uh, somewhere around Dillsburg, I think, or Harrisburg, better said, I think we're somewhere in the top 15 in the country 
for sex trafficking. So again, fact check that. I don't want to misrepresent, but I just want, this is real, and, and it's something that we need to be praying desperately for. God, bind the enemy. Stop this demonic. There's nothing else you could say about it but that it's demonic. Um, and one other uh, just thing I'd ask you to be praying about is uh, Pastor Steve tonight and Pastor Bill have been talking to you on Sunday and Wednesday about a church fast. And I know there's been some questions about what that is. We've been doing this pretty much every year since Calvary Chapel has come, you know, since the Lord planted the work here a few years ago. And really it's a time that we come corporately. There's a book in the bookstore we keep off, and it's called God's Chosen Fast. And it goes through and it highlights all the scriptural, not all, almost every one of the scriptural references to fasting and what it is, that time of spiritual conditioning, that time of emptying out, being before the Lord, and just spending time and just being with Jesus. And no distraction of food, no distraction of anything like that, just you and Jesus, you know. It's a sweet time. Um, Every time I've done a fast, you know, the first day is okay. It's right. Oh, okay. We're Second day gets a little tougher. Third day, you're right in the middle of it. It gets heavy. And then it's like the word just leaps off the page right into your heart. It's so awesome because your body's not fighting to break down all the food and rushing from your brain to your stomach. And you just get such a focus. And then Thursday comes around day four and man, you're meeting with the Lord and it's sweet and you're like, I don't want to eat ever again, right? Bad idea, eat again. Uh, But, you know, 30 days later, eat again, no. Um, And you turn around and then by Friday, here we are and you're like, all right, I could keep doing this for a week or two. Wow, I, you know, I just feel better. I've had this time of just prayer with the Lord. It's been sweet. And then we meet together at five o'clock. Is it six o'clock or five o'clock? Five o'clock. We meet together at five o'clock here. We go in the cafe. My wife or some of the ladies, um, they will make a beautiful soup for us. And we come and we make a manch. We, bro- we break bread together. We sit there and we have the soup together. And we just, we, we open up. We talk about different things the Lord showed us individually for our homes, for our lives. And then sometimes the Lord will show you all, different things for the church, corporately. What does this year look like? You know, we need to be focused on, I heard somebody say earlier, I think it was Pastor Steve, we, this year, the children, children's ministry, we're losing children by middle school. You know, what are we doing? We've got to get the word of God. We're competing with the public schools and the indoctrination in the public schools. We have to get the word of God into them. So as an example, somebody might come away and say, Pastor, you know, Lord's really showing me this, or they showed me that. And it's just a sweet time to come together. I don't know how many of you, I'm curious. I know some of you have been with us for years, so you've done How many people have never done a week-long church, uh, a week-long fast in general? I'm just curious. So, so quite, a, quite a number of you, actually. I really want to encourage you. Look, you know, I understand sometimes there's some medical reasons that you can't, uh, whether there's diabetes or different, then you do a, a modified fast like that. If that's something you need to do for health reasons, certainly talk to your doctor. But there's something really wonderful about denying the flesh, about taking that opportunity. And, and I know it seems like, man, I'm going to die. I have to work 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. You're going to live. I know the feel. I, I, I remember, some of you know I used to work for Microsoft. I travel all around the world. I can remember being in one city, landing, traveling to another city, and it's Thursday, and I hadn't eaten three and four days, and you're just like, you, know, you don't even know where you're walking at that point, right? But 
I'd just get alone with the Lord, and I'd sit down in a corner in an airport, I'd open my Bible, and he would speak to me so mightily wherever I was. I really want to encourage you this year. With everything going on, there's so much going on in the world. We need so much prayer, and we need to be asking Jesus, Lord, heal the brokenness of this nation. Lord, heal the sin issue with the world. There's just so much we need to be coming to him in prayer. And God is faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful and just to renew, to restore, to rebuild. God can do anything. So I, I just ask you, please go ahead and, and, and pray. If there's any questions after service tonight, go ahead and come up afterwards and you can ask me. I'm happy to bring in any scripture you'd like to understand why we do that. There's scripture in the Old Testament, New Testament, but it's really a beautiful time. I'd also encourage you to, um, if you need, you know, you'd like, we'll, we'll grab some more books in the library, uh, God's Chosen Fast, and you can read it at your own pace and understand why we do this. And, you know, out at the Calvary Chapel I came from, we did this. It was, a, it was pretty well known in Calvary chapels to do a, a week-long fast. This isn't something that we just invented, but it's a really beautiful time. So I want to encourage you, and please, if you do the fast, come Friday together because we pray together. We break the fast together. It's very important we do this as just as it is in the Bible. We want to come together in all things, breaking bread, the apostles' doctrine, right? Prayer, steadfast. Well, tonight we're going to be jumping into Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. And you might notice I got an interesting piece of technology up here that I'm going to kind of go through with you here in a minute as a preface to kind of just take you a little bit along of where we've been going and where we're going tonight. And sometimes a visual really helps. So I'm going to go over here, and I'm not going to be mic'd up, so I'm going to turn this the best I can so that those in the other room can hear. And I don't know on the camera if you need to pan it back or what you might need to do or if I need to move this over. Either way, I'll accommodate that. But I want to just sort of draw your attention and what we're going to be seeing here, this is sort of setting the biblical setting in the context of where Joshua had, as you see, the Jordan just begun to cross over it. So I'm going to take a minute. I'll move this. I'm going to bring this over. And I'm going to, I'm going to somehow try not to uh, knock it over here. You know, I, I worry about breaking the glass and the technology and all that. Um, yeah, that's one of the good things. Pardon my back to you all. So... Joshua's been, effectively, at this point, he was on the east, east shore, right? The east side of the... I thought some of you would get the kick out of that. Uh, uh, east shore of the Jordan, east side of the Jordan River, okay? And he, he was camped out here for a while, you remember? Um, you know, Reuben, uh, half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad, said, you know what, we're going to stay over here. The land's fertile. We don't want to cross over. God tells them cross over. They begin to make their way. Obviously, he stops the Jordan right here from the water because it was overflowing at this time. He then sets up 12 rocks as a memorial. He then comes on the other side. He does the same thing. All right? And then he basically is right by Gilgal at this point. What else happens at Gilgal? Circumcision. Pain. So they hang out at Gilgal for a little, after the circumcision's over because they didn't want to repeat the mistake as earlier and, uh, you know, going into some type of war. So what they do is they make their way from Gilgal and they come up to Jericho. Now, when they get to Jericho, as you know, God tells them to do what? Each day they're to walk around 
that city, and it would have been actually a little bit closer here to the Jordan, but you, you're following along. They would have walked around, and on day seven, what were they to do? Walk around at seven times, blowing the trumpet. The wall would fall down, right? And then what happened after that? That's supposed to be a fire. Just go with me. So that's a fire right there. So they set it on fire, right? So Jericho is pretty much destroyed, not to be rebuilt that way. Then what happens is, you remember, initially they make their way over to Ai. And as they start to make their way over to Ai, what happens? They didn't go back to Gilgal. They didn't go back where they could have remembered or they could have took a time to pray the memorial stones to remember. Because they didn't pray, they got a little bit confident. Joshua said, go ahead and go over. As they turn around and go over, they go to go in battle. And what happens? They lose the battle. But why did they lose the battle? Because God turns around and says, hey, there's sin in the camp. Gentlemen by the name of Achan because when they were in Jericho and before they had set it on fire, he says, do not take of anything from this area. This is sanctified. It's mine. This is all unto the Lord. But Achan knew better and decided he was going to do that. Well, obviously, uh, Joshua calls through all the tribes. They all come forward one by one. Finally, Achan comes forward and says, he says, son, what did you do? Tells Joshua what he had done. They turn around and what do they do? They stone Achan right here. And they set up a memorial that way of stones, if you will, to remember that as well, because they, they cover his body, you know. Now, God turns around and says, okay, now you're going to go to I, and I'm going to give you the battle. And that's where we are today, chapter 8. So as we start to go to I, he's going to do something very unique. As he takes him to I, he's going to tell Joshua, I want you to take this army, and I want you to break this army into. By night, I'm going to have you send... To the west side of I, a group of 5,000 soldiers, and they're going to wait out right there. I'm going to have you take another 25,000, and I'm going to have you go to the north side of I. But I'm going to do that, and there's a ravine right here, so they can't really see. So he's been doing this all by night. He's got, it's, it's remarkable. He's got 25,000 soldiers up here, basically. He's got 5,000 over here to the west of I, in between Bethel and I. Then what's going to happen after that is daylight's going to come. These 25,000 are going to come over here. Helps if I use a different color. They're going to make their way back this way. Now they're going to see them because they're past the ravine. So once they're going to see them, Eyes feeling really good because what happened last time? They got their butts kicked, right? So they're turning around and thinking, hey, man, you know what? We're going to come down and we're going to set up right here because this is a flat area. If you know the geography, it's a very flat area, good, good place for a skirmish or a battle. So they come here. I says, you know what? We're going to come out. Now, when they start to come out to go to fight, right, what is Joshua going to do? Joshua's going to go, oh, no, we're going to get beat. He's like, we're, he we're heading out of here. They start retreating back this way. Towards Jericho almost back. And when doing so, what does I do? They think, we got them now. We're going we're gonna to rush them. So they, car, they come out fast and heavy, and they're coming out to rush them. While that's happening, the 5,000 that are back over here, they turn around and come over to I, and then they set it on fire. Again, it's fire. Go with me. So they set it on fire. When they set that on fire... The soldiers that are now here, the soldiers from I, they look back and go, oh my, eyes on fire, what happened? The minute they turn their back on the 25,000 soldiers, the 25 soldiers now rush in this way, 
the 5,000 that were over here come down, and they all meet them and trap them right in the middle. An amazing strategic battle when you look at it. And God had given this all to Joshua and exactly how they were to perform this. And they did it. I'm telling you, people have studied this. Army War College, military strategists have looked at this strategy of what was done. This idea of faking a retreat, coming back, flanking, coming down. This, it's really remarkable. I know my, uh, my drawings don't give it justice. But that's exactly what we're about to read about. And then what's going to happen is from there, they're going to obviously continue on and we'll read that. But I just wanted you to see exactly more or less. You guys with me? You're tracking with me? All right, let me move this and let's, let's start reading our Bibles. Because I know my, yeah, that's going to make a whole lot of sense in a minute. Maybe the computer was a good option. All right, let's uh, bow our heads and pray, and we'll begin. Father, we just thank you for your holy word, Lord. Thank you that, um, Lord, you speak to hearts that are willing to receive and listen. Lord, that's us right now. We want to hear from you, Lord. Lord, let us lay down the cares of the week and all that's been going on, Lord. We pray for our government. We pray for our leaders, Lord. We pray that, um, Lord, you would be in the midst of this congregation, this people here tonight and that we'd hear, see, and understand all that you have for us. Lord, thank you that you've preserved this word, this faithfulness, because once again, God, you show us nothing is impossible for you. And we just thank you for this word here. Thank you for you, Jesus, who you are. We love you. And we pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen. All right, he says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Now, that's interesting. We read that once before in Joshua 1.9. Obviously, Joshua's going back into a, a tumult here, into a battle. Last time, it didn't work out well. Joshua, like any other human being, is doing what? He's doubting. He's maybe worrying. He's having some second thoughts. Lord, are you sure? Now, we don't understand that because we've never done that, right? <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. Are you sure, Lord? Because why would God come to him and say, Now, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't trust what you see. Don't trust what you understand. Trust my promise, Joshua. Take all the people of war with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, and the city, his city, and his land. You see, the sin was dealt with. And this is a beautiful picture for you and I today in Christ. When we repent and we get right with God, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The sin is dealt with, and now what follows the sin? When we repent we, from the sin, we receive the blessing and the victory every single time. And that's what we see here. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. He says, Joshua, this shouldn't frighten you. We've been through this before. How many times has God spoke that into your heart? When you've gone through a trial or a difficult time and you've needed to, to have that supernatural strength that God has only given you, and yet you face that next trial before you, and you know God's got it, but your tummy feels a little off right? You don't have as much muster as you'd like in that moment. You begin to even maybe have moments of uncertainty and doubt. God doesn't say, well, 
get over it. No, what's he say? He says, Joshua, don't you remember? We've been through so much together. I've never left you nor forsake you, and I'm not going to start now. Trust me. I've got you. I've always had you. And he's always got us. Trust him. He says, and you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Now, I think this is so interesting that God included this in here. Why? Because if Achan would have trusted the Lord, he was so concerned. Am I going to have enough? Is it going to work out? That he took matters into his own hands in Jericho where he was told, don't touch the spoil. This is holy and separated for me, sanctified. But Achan's thinking, what am I going to do? Look, it's all there. I'm just going to take a little gold, a little silver, because I, I, I'm going to put my trust in what I have, not in the God of the universe. It still happens today. Look, the Bible says there's nothing wrong with planning for the future or saving. There's nothing wrong. But when you put your faith in that, oh my, that's idolatry. Anything between your soul and God or anyone is idolatry. He says, no, I had a plan. I was going to bless you and I was going to provide for you. But when we try to take it in our hands and we don't wait on the Lord, I want you to think of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. I mean, I could go on and on through Scripture. How many times when man takes something into their hands and begins to, you know, subvert God's plan, we think we're helping by micromanaging God, but in essence, what are we doing? We're settling for God's second best, and that's the best case scenario, the worst case scenario is we're just matter-of-factly sinning and actually creating separation between us and God and we're heaping it on ourselves. And then we create a mess. And then we go back to God, Lord, help me in the mess that I, do we say I created? Or do we often look to God, Lord, you allowed this. <laughs> right? I hear laughing. So I, I think I know where we all stand on that. Well, so he says, only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose, all the people of war, to go up against Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. As I mentioned to you, this is all being done at night. He's going to split, split 5,000 up to go around on the west side. He's going to take 25,000, go to the north. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us at first that we shall flee from before them. For they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing for before us as at the first, as it was beforehand. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city. Those that are on the west side between, as you saw here, between Bethel and Ai, those are the 5,000 that are going to come around and plant the ambush by beginning to burn the city of Ai, to draw them back, actually. 
It's, it's quite ingenious how God did this. I mean, he draws them out. They flank. They're chasing. They t- oh, I mean, talk about squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. I mean, that's what he does. He draws their attention multiple times off of their attack only so that God properly positioned his people to give them the victory. All they had to do was obey. Just obey God and leave the consequences to him. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. He wants him to understand This isn't up for discussion. Do this. Obey. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai the 25,000. Now a valley lay, or a ravine, lay between them and I. That's what we just talked about. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between where? Bethel and I on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night in the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of I saw it, in other words, when they came back around the ravine, as I showed you before, now they see them. The king couldn't see them by night because the ravine or the valley was there. He couldn't see, but now he sees them. He goes, hey, let's go get them, right? Now it happened when the king I saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it to your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of I looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven, So they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back to the pursuers. And they started coming back towards um, the city of Ai, seeing it on fire. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city, and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back, and now they've caught him in the middle, both sides, 25,000 and 5,000, coming right together at this city of, basically at this people group of about 12,000. They're going to turn around and says, struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst against them. So they were, sorry. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on the side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him to Joshua. 
And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. All the people of Ai. God give the victory just as he promised, and it was just judgment. Remember who these folks are. We're talking about Canaanites. We're talking about those that have willfully rejected God and began to worship pagan idols. They were committing all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of horrible atrocities, burning children alive as sacrifices, terrible thing, worship of gods that they had made with their hands. It was brutal. It was brutal. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord. They made sure to put that in, which he had commanded Joshua. That's important. They obeyed. He said, what's God saying? 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. I desire what? Obedience over sacrifice. But pastor, we're under a new covenant, a better covenant. Amen. Yes, we are. Amen. Yes, we are. Well, so I'm an anti-nominalist or nominalism. Well, what's that mean? That's a fancy word. It means that I believe grace covers so much and everything that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. There are no more commandments and statutes of God. I can do whatever I think is right. There's people that live that way today. But Jesus gave us such precious words in his New Testament. How will you know those that love me? Those that keep my commandments and statutes. Certainly we're not under ceremonial law, right? We're not under the ceremonial law. But the moral law has never been advocated. There, there's nothing that says we can go out and murder and, you know, that we're to go out and steal or covet or any of these other things. God, God didn't somehow say, well, you know, because of my grace, you can go take booty from wherever you want and spoil from wherever you want and all of these things. No, we still have to follow his commandments and statutes. We still got to do it God's way because it's not the democracy of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven, and there's a king. So Joshua burned, I had made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of I, had, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it into the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise, it, raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Now, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Boy, this should sound familiar. We've read something about this before. Hold your finger here. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 27, we read about, if you were with us at that time, if not, you can go back and listen to the recordings on the website or on the phone app or what have you. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, You'll see right in verse 4, 
there's specific instruction that was given, okay, about how they were to go and they were to separate on two sides of a mountain, Mount Ebal and um, Mount Gerizim. And they were half and half. Some were to be yelling curses and some were to be yelling blessings. I'll just read verse 4. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today and you shall whitewash them with lime. Okay, some 35 miles north or so, maybe even a little bit more from Jerusalem there. And you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. This was commanded. Now they're doing it. An altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool for them, right? Remember Exodus 20? Don't do something that man has touched. Don't, don't, I don't want any fingerprints of man on it. That's what he's saying here. You shall build the whole stones, the altar of the Lord God, and a burnt offering to it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. That means be grateful with joy. And you shall write very plainly on the stones of the words of this law. What law? Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, many believe. The Mo- then Moses and the priests and the Levites spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And Moses commanded the people on that day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim. That word in the Hebrew means beautiful. On Mount Beautiful, that's what he says. And you will proclaim blessings. Bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. And he goes through Simeon, you know, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. He says, half the tribes are going on this side, and you all are going to declare the blessings of God from one side of the mountain, the beautiful mountain, across to the other side, right? That other side is barren, right? That's Mount Ebal. And that's where the curse is. And over there is Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali, right? Those tribes are going to be yelling back. So this is the scene going back and forth that was in Deuteronomy 27. It's actually being completed or finally done, if you will. Uh, It was instructed before. Now we see in Joshua chapter 830, they're going to go through with this. They're going to go through this. Now, just a couple of facts, you know, information I kind of looked up. Mount Ebal, Mount, you know, that summit elevation is around 3,077 feet um, on that north side. Mount Gerizim is about 2,849 feet on the south side of the valley, um, where the Arabs and you know today the West Bank. You guys are familiar with the West Bank. You've heard of the West Bank. It's near the city of uh, where Nebulus now stands. From Gerizim, the Hebrews were to recite the blessings God promised from Ebal. And the curses, as we just talked about. They did this renewing the covenant that God had established with them under Joshua's leadership. And it's interesting, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 15, it refers to Mount Ephraim. How many people have read that and saw Mount Ephraim? Mount Ephraim is a collection of what we see as these two mountainscapes. And that's what we learned from Jeremiah 4.15, because it says that it's Consider Ebal Gerizim as a mountain range, as a unit. So we begin to see how important that this will play out much into the future, even in the, the, the contemporary time of Jeremiah. This, this mountain, this scape, and they'll look at it. Remember, they're building an altar there. They're going to worship there. 
Eventually, we'll see out later in Kings, it'll play out interestingly, because some will say, our people worshipped on this side. Remember, instead of going over to the temple in Jerusalem that will be established under Solomon, David would want to build it. He'll be given the design plans, but it won't actually be carried out until Solomon's son, because David had blood on too much blood on his hands to actually carry that out. But he'll say, our people worshipped. They're talking about here. This is the place they're talking about. It's, it's, it's prominent. It was well remembered because the blessings and the cursings and what it would be, the covenant and the promise. And it was a memorial. It was a reminder. So let's look at verse 30 here in chapter 8 of Joshua. It says, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal, and Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel. And it was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of, of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now, I think it's significant that they're worshiping here. I really do. And I think it's wonderful that we see this idea of sacrifice. Because not very far from here, in Jerusalem, much like this scape that would be high up, and you would see these three places. We've got Mount Ebal, we've got Mount Gerizim, and if you follow over, as you move your way, and you can even see it, we kind of drafted it down, Jerusalem's showing down, you'll see another place. And where was that? Calvary. Now, I want you to think about the sacrifices that are taking place here as a forward foreshadowing of what would be of the ultimate sacrifice that would complete and take place in Jerusalem at Calvary. That they would turn around and be able to see it from this mountainscape. If they were to look over, I mean, it's 40 miles, you can't literally see all the, but you can see up in the plains. You would be able to see up the high elevation. You would be able to see this area. To know, you ever go to the Grand Canyon or somewhere else where you can see in the distance great scapes that are in front of you. You can see vastness, you know, 20 miles, 10 miles out. Certainly you can't see it in, you know, pixelated detail, but you can see the shadows of it. I wonder if when they're standing up there, as they're going through and talking about the blessings of that covenant, if they just begin to look just slightly to the, the angle that way, and they look right at Calvary. Golgotha, the skull. If they begin to look over that way, and at that moment, something's going to happen there one day that's forever going to change everything. And that God would have it be a sacrifice and, oh, by the way, a peace offering. I mean, just the significance of that. I don't know. We'll have to wait till we're in heaven and we can ask God, but it is certainly interesting when you look at the geography, because you're so high up elevated, like 2,800 you know, feet like that, you're, you're able to see that, and I think Golgotha would have been the other significant, or Calvary would have been the other significant thing you would have seen as a mountainscape in that area, the elevation. So it says, then all of Israel, with the elders and the officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as he who had, was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, 
remember the blessing in Beautiful Mountain, and half of them were on Mount Ebal, for the curses, right? As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, written on those whitewashed stones, Deuteronomy, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that's written in the book of the law. Notice that. That's why when I was in that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 27, I didn't think it was the Ten Commandments, right? I didn't think it was just when we would think of the law, you might say, well, it's the Ten Commandments. No, it says the book of the law. That's speaking of the entire book of Deuteronomy, I believe. Some have suggested, was it the entire Pentateuch? You know, was it the entire, you know, from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, the first five books? Again, we'll have to ask God specifically, but I believe it's Deuteronomy in particular because he says the book, not books. Even though back at that time, certainly scholarly, you could argue there were not necessarily separate books as we understand them today. There were no chapter breaks. There were no verses in understanding the way. We've done that for readability, for memorization, and what have you. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. We see Joshua being obedient and faithful. With the women, with the little ones, do you see that? With the women, with the little ones, the strangers who were living among them. Everybody needs the word of God. Everybody. And everybody's changed by the word of God. Now, if you look at this treaty that's going to be made, there's a treaty that's going to be established with the Gibbonites. This is really interesting, and I won't get through this whole chapter tonight, certainly with our time remaining, but I'd like to set it up for you uh, because I think it's important how it's going to play out historically through the Bible. Now, I mentioned Canaan a little bit with you. Um, If I can just ask you, just as a way so I can sort of ground you in who we're talking about, these Gibeonites, who are these people? You know, I want to ground you in Scripture to know where we're at. Turn, hold your finger here. Turn to Genesis chapter 10. Where did these Gibeonites come from? We, we really, we've read about them once before early on in Genesis, but then we really haven't seen anything about them. We, we haven't really seen anything that's sort of come from this point. So let's acquaint ourselves with this people group. If you remember, when we were in Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10 is the table of nations. Specifically, if you go back to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, and you look right around verse 15, we'll be introduced to them. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heath. The Jebusites, the Amorite, and the Girgashite. The Hivite, underline Hivite for me. This is going to make sense a little bit. The Archite and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hathamite. Afterward, the families of Canaan, or Canaanites, were dispersed. So they're Canaanites. But you're saying, wait a minute, I don't see Gibeon in there. Just hold on. Underline Hivite for me. It's going to make more sense in a minute. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go towards Ger, as far as Gaza. Then you will go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebum, and as far as Lash. These were the sons of who? Ham. Who got off the boat? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Remember that? Noah's boys and their wives. And what did they redo? Populate the whole earth, right? Based on these people. So we know that the Hivites are direct descendants, Canaanites, and they're direct descendants of who? 
Ham, who got off the, okay, we're, we're, we're tracking. All right, now I want you to do me a favor. Turn back to Joshua. Remember where you were in Genesis chapter 10, verse 15 to 20. Make yourself a, a note here in a minute. Write Joshua eleven nineteen, Because when you go to Joshua eleven nineteen, we're going to read about it. It says, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the who? Look in your Bible. Who? Hivites. Now, wait a minute. We're about to read chapter 9 where basically the Hivites, sorry, give me nights. Let's use their, their term, but it's the Hivites. They're going to effectively make a pact. How are they going to do it? They're going to deceive Joshua. They're going to pretend that they're from a foreign land and they're going to come in and they're going to turn around and say, oh, Joshua, we've heard about you and we've heard about the word and everything. I mean, they quite honestly know quite a lot about God because I wonder if Papa Ham had told them. You see, this is important because when people come back and say, but the Canaanites, is it their fault they didn't know the word of God? Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Ham, Shem, and Japheth all got off the boat together. I don't see any race division. I don't see any of that. One people group. One blood. One blood. Divisions of man, not of God. One blood. And from that, we see that that group under Ham, the Canaanites, the Hivite, was listed in that in the table of nations. We just read that, didn't we? And then we turned around and went to Joshua, and Joshua further descri described who this people group was as the Canaanites. He says, as part of this Canaanites, you have a group called the Hivites, and they're the only city that made peace with us. Now, when we read the whole book of Joshua, and we know our Old Testament scripture, there's not another people group, because God had already commanded them to do what? To go in and destroy all of the Canaan, all of that land, and to take that land. So there was no other people group that they have peace with but who? But the Gibeonites, and why? Because a covenant that Joshua made, being tricked, should have prayed, another lesson. You know, when I really look in the Bible, there's two specific things in the book of Joshua, two times where you could say there were, might be uh, failings. One certainly an eye with the sin of Achan, and then the other one is Gibeon, the Gibeonites. He didn't pray. He, did, he didn't seek the Lord. It actually says that in chapter 9. He did not seek God on what to do about this matter. He took it into his own hands again. It's important. That's why I don't understand. You know, when you skip around the Bible and you, you, you don't read line by line and verse by verse and go through the whole thing, you, you, how do you see the richness of all that God is preserving for us, showing that God is a God of promise? And he keeps his promises generations later. Even when Saul's already dead, he still kept his promises, right? He's going to act revenge because there was, and whose vengeance is it? For God. God's vengeance, right? So turn back with me in chapter 9. We'll, we'll get a little bit of a running start here. But as I mentioned, you know, who were the Hivites? The Hivites were nations that descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. We read that in Genesis 10, 17. And again, the first time they play an active role, you might remember, is in Shechem. The Hivite raped Dinah. Do you remember that? The daughter of Jacob and Leah, a full blood sister of Simeon and Levi, Genesis chapter 34. Then the blooders' bloody revenge cost the second and thirdborn their status, and their descendants were condemned and dispersed in Israel without any land of their own. That was Genesis chapter 49. 
And while Jacob and his family were trying to deal with the Hivite problem, Jacob's brother Esau acquired a woman by the name of Oholamah, or Holabama. And she was a Hivite wife. As they were dealing with the Hivite problem, he goes and marries a Hivite. Do you see, I think you get it. You get it. When the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and made it to Canaan, the Hivite were firmly established as one of the Canaanite nations. You can look at that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 7. When Joshua and Israel's army attacked the nations of Canaan into a coalition, uh, the men of Hivite in the city of Gibeon, as we're going to read, tricked, right? They tricked, they tried to deceive Joshua, saving them, and the only way that works out is that they end up having to become slaves. They're going to become slaves because of their lie, but God still honors the promise. And then the coalition, still containing, you know, the Hivites, counter-struck with a huge army in Joshua 11.4, but eventually, and almost all were slain, and all their cities were taken, but they still live. By the time of Judges, the Hivites still lived on in near Mount Lebanon, Baal Hermon, we read that in Judges chapter 3.3, 3, and so did the other Canaanite nations. They survived, as we know, because they're going to be there at the time of Saul. The Israelites began to intermarry with them and threatened to dissolve, and the Lord set a long string, you remember this, of judges. He goes through and they keep doing what's right in their own eyes. He sends judges and then they sin, and he sends judges and they sin. And this is going on because they begin to marry with the Hivites and the Canaanites that way. They actually intermarry with them, which they were forbidden to do. By the time of David, and we just read that in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David ordered, if you remember, his prideful census, and the Hivites were still alive, right? And they're still around in the north, and you can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 7. And then we see them once more. They're actually, they're actually forced into labor to build the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, Solomon began building the temple, and the Hivites were still present enough for Solomon to levy their labor. Why am I bringing all this up and taking you through? Because God's a God of promise. Today, we don't know how they, at this point, because they began to intermarry and they became very, you know, in Israel, we don't, we really don't know. God knows, though. And I'm sure there's still a remnant of Gibeonites alive today because God would honor that. So let's just take a few verses here and... Uh, We'll pick up next week here that way. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Persezite, the Hivite, see that there, and the Jebusite heard about it. They gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho at Ai, they worked craftily. And went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, And to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where did you come from? So they said to him, 
from a very far country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. Do you see that? They know. You know what, friends? They know today, too. They know Jesus. They know who he is. Don't be deceived. They know. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashroth, Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provisions from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy, a lie. And these wineskins which were filled were new, and see, they are torn, and our garments are, and our sandals have become old because of the long journey. Again, a lie. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they, here it is, underline this in your Bible, very important, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Do you see that? The same thing again, Joshua. And I, that was the problem, wasn't it? That was the sin. And once again, it happens. Now, is God not long-suffering? Is God not going to forgive Joshua? Is God not even going to honor the promise that Joshua makes, even though, quite honestly, was he honoring God by taking that oath? No. But God is just, and God forgives, and God is righteous, and he honors integrity. They did not speak with God, just as we saw in chapter 7. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were all with the neighbors who dwelt them. Oops, busted. They find it out. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sirhaphra, Beroth, and Kirjoth-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. And then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers. For all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers, for the house of my God. They knew. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants from the land from before you. Wait a minute. They even knew the law. They, they didn't just know a little bit. They knew the law. What law? Exodus chapter 23, verse 31 through 33. They're basically quoting it back. Not if that wasn't enough. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. They're quoting it back. More is caught than taught. Ham, what did he do? Ham, after Genesis, right? The population, he turned around, they spread out. 
God turned around. He gave a law, right? That happens in Exodus, right? Law gets carried out in Leviticus, right? We, we, we see it propagating. The people, the Canaanites, the land all around, they all know what the word of God is and what the law is. What's the problem? It's rebellion of heart. Friends, what's the problem today? Is it because we really have a people? Is it really because we have a Senate and a Congress and a government and a world and countries all around the world that don't know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Lord of lords, that he's come to redeem, to save, to set apart, to restore, to heal, and to resurrect all that place their faith and trust, that profess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's not a single person that can deny it. So what's the rub? It's rebellion. It's rebellion. Now, God's pretty consistent. Amen? God's consistent. Now, now in the Bible, we'll read, as we read through our Old Testament, I know we're at our time, so I can see the fidgeting of the, the, the chairs there. So hang with me another minute. I, 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 know, I, I understand. I get, I get numb sometimes when I sit, too. I get it. <laughs> Got to get the blood flowing. I want you to hang with me for a minute, Mo. I want you to think about this. This is really important today. When you think back, the people knew. They said that the Lord your God commanded to serve Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid. God had prophesied and said they would be. Exodus 15, 14, oh, by the way. Because you have done this thing. They knew the judgment to come, didn't they? They knew the judgment to come, didn't they? They didn't want to believe because that meant that they would do what? They would have to repent. But they didn't want to repent, did they? But did that stop Joshua? Did that stop Moses? Did that stop the children in the church of two to three million of Israel for not professing the great I am? Absolutely not. Now here we are. We're in the last of the last days. Now, they know the Bible. They don't know the Bible, but they know of the accounts in the Bibles. They call them stories. But they know of the Bible. They know that Jesus is going to come again. They know that there's going to be judgment. It's called a great tribulation. They make movies about Armageddon. They use the name for a whole lot of other things when it suits them. So this isn't a, this isn't a question of knowing or understanding. It's a question of rebellion and obeying. And we know that day is coming, that day of judgment, just like they knew. But they didn't, they didn't think it was going to happen to them, but they were still afraid. You see, Rahab, Rahab was a Canaanite, wasn't she? When you think about Moabite, right? Or, or was she not a Moabite? She was a Canaanite, right? <coughs> You think about it. She was, because she was in Canaan, right at Jericho. Of course she was a Canaanite. Trick question. She's a Canaanite. Did God not save her? Did God not save her home? Was it not because she honored what God had done and what God would do? Is she not the great-great-great-grandmother seven times removed from what? From David? What is it? I think 11 or more times removed from Jesus? There's work to be done in this city. 
They know. They knew then. But there are willing hearts like Rahab out there that want the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're just waiting for somebody to come and ask them, to help them, to tell them, receive the truth, because the truth's going to set you free. It didn't stop Israel. They were occupying. They were obeying. It shouldn't stop the church. It shouldn't stop the Christian today. We shouldn't grow indifferent. We shouldn't grow hard-hearted where we're turning around going, God, look at these sinners. No. My God's a God of forgiveness. My God's a God about repentance. Because they know. They know judgment's coming. Will you take the time to love them and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of salvation? Can I ask everybody tonight, will you intentionally seek God tomorrow morning or, you know, whatever time you get out of bed, if it's afternoon, I don't know where you're at. I don't want to assume. But whatever time you get mobile, will you turn around and ask God for that divine appointment? Will you ask God for that divine appointment he wants to give you? That shoes that he wants you to walk in, those shoes shot with peace, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you do that? And leave the consequences to God. Because there's a Rahab out there. There's a Rahab out there that needs this truth. Because of you, I've done this thing, and now here we are in your hands. Do with us, it seems good and right to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of his children of Israel, so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made the woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation. They didn't care. They were just happy to be part of it. And for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Amen, amen, amen. There's work to be done in this city. Father, God, as you have overheard, Lord Jesus, and you know the intention and will of our hearts, Lord, we desire to be a people, Lord, a nation after you and your heart, Lord. God, we desire that you would strengthen us and give us boldness. Pour out your Holy Spirit tonight, Lord, on each and every one of us. Fill us anew, Lord. Give us the gifts that we need to. Lord, have to, to do the work you've called us to, not for our purpose, not for our glory, but only for you, Jesus, for your name's sake and the name's sake for the kingdom of God. God, I pray, create those divine appointments here tomorrow, Lord, even tonight, Lord God, before we leave this building, that there's somebody here that doesn't know you. Today's the day of salvation, Lord. As we lay our heads down tonight, may we pray for those that we know are prodigals, for those that we need know that need the gospel. God, please create fertile soil that the word of God will take hold because we know it doesn't return void. We use this inadequate vessel, Lord, to do your bidding for your glory, for your honor, for your purpose and plan. Then when we stand before you, we'll cross. We'll just take those crowns of righteousness and cast them upon your feet. For God, we did nothing good of ourselves. But may we be a people that are called by your name, blood-bought, completely surrendered to you, Jesus Christ. We leave here tonight as you'd have us. 
willing servants of the great I am. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Bless us with travel mercies. We pray all this and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Have a wonderful night in Christ. And if you have any questions about the fast,